You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 11 of Who Financed Hitler, part 5, or Albion's Perfidy. Today I'm recording from Kelling Hall in Norfolk, England. Through this series on Nazi financing, don't think I can't hear you shouting at your podcast player. But what about the Italians? I haven't forgot about the Italians. Let's get into it. The first known and probable contact between the Italian fascists and the Nazis took place in 1922. This was when Kurt Ludicke was starting out on his world tour that culminated with his securing funding from Henry Ford, like we talked about in episode 8. Kurt Ludicke went to Italy in 1922 and met Benito Mussolini. About a month before Mussolini's march on Rome, that began the rule of fascism in Italy. According to Ludicchi, Mussolini looked unhealthy, with a gaunt collar and bitten fingernails, probably from overwork. But together they quickly established a rapport and talked for four hours. Not an insubstantial time commitment from a man who ran an organization that was soon to seize state power. When Ludicchi came back to Germany, he gave Hitler a long and full report which focused first on all the shared similarities between them and the Italian fascists. There's an interesting passage I'd like to read. The discussion then moved to the important role of Italy in Nazi foreign policy. Hitler asserted that the natural future ally of Germany should be England, and thus when the Nazis came to power they would try to alienate England from France. But at the present time, the Nazis were not in a position to manipulate or bargain with England or with any of the major foreign powers. If there were any hope of an ally in Europe, it would be Italy, that is, if Mussolini came to power. So that's a remarkable assertion that the natural future ally of Germany should be England. I mean, we all know that Germany and Italy ended up forming an alliance, but Hitler wanted and needed England, not Italy. Later on in the episode, we'll return to this idea. So Mussolini became prime minister on the 29th of October, 1922, and Hitler immediately dispatched Kurt Ludicke to go visit him again. Hitler gave him four goals. First, to get the Nazis' sympathy and good coverage in the Italian press. Second, to weaken the influence of the Berlin government. Third, to assure Mussolini that the Nazis do not claim South Tyrol, a region in northern Italy and southern Austria that had bounced back and forth between the great powers. The Italians currently wanted it, and Hitler was willing to concede it. Fourth, if possible, to get money. Hitler sent Ludicchi, and on his way out, he shouted, Rip out of Mussolini whatever you can. So the first goal, to get good press coverage, was actually bizarrely easy, although maybe understandable considering the circumstances, because Kurt Ludicchi basically convinced the entire Italian press, with the exception of the communists, of course, to listen to him instead of Berlin newspapers. The reason why this happened was because most Italian newspapers were being infiltrated and influenced by the wave of fascism sweeping the country. So of course they loved to get the fascist version of news coming out of Germany as told by the Nazis. When Ludicchi met Mussolini again, he was happy that Mussolini recognized and remembered him. 
Ludicky noticed that Mussolini now had a healthy bronze tan, normal-looking fingernails, and a spring in his step. The Program to Chill Guide to Proper Health and Care of Dictators Step 1 is Give Them State Power. If your dictator is feeling sluggish, gray, bad complexion, or any of these things, be sure to give them state power. Anyway, the second meeting was short since Il Duce had just seized power, so Ludici hung tight and stuck around, and Mussolini had him meet with Baron Russo, who was Mussolini's new Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Baron Russo was also a member of the Knights of Malta. Ludici said that the Baron was very attentive but offered no help or special commitment at this time and gave them no official support. Now, if you remember in episode 8, Kurt Ludicky said that Henry Ford did not give him any funds. If we listened to him, nobody gave the Nazis any funds, which is patently false, so we can't listen to Ludicky when it comes to things that he would have to lie about. Kurt Ludicky's entire job was Nazi party fundraiser, and are we to believe him that he never raised any funds? Now, if we pay attention to what Kurt Ludicky actually said, we realize he did the classic Nazi thing of hiding the truth within an obvious lie. Because he said that the Italian government did not give them any official support. Which is true. But what about unofficial support? Why, there are all kinds of unofficial support a state can give to political parties in other countries. Here's one example. When Mussolini had his first reception with the king at the Palazzo Venezia, by necessity and by design, many important foreign representatives did not get an invitation. But guess who attended? Kurt Ludicky, the representative of a radical fascist party that did not yet hold a single seat in the Reichstag. Now, if you're Benito Mussolini, the first fascist to seize power, you want other countries to follow your lead and go fascist. The Oxford historian Adrian Littleton said, Mussolini's secret personal policy gives concrete proof of his desire to disrupt the European order. And he said, The fondness for tactics of internal subversion and intrigue with foreign political movements was a marked feature of fascist policy from the beginning. Now, I'm not a fan of overextending the basic insight that people love to project their actual plans onto their enemies, but like, come on. The fascists were clearly doing the things that they said the Jews were doing in the protocols. As an example, Mussolini's Italy gave military supplies for Hungarian nationalists and the German army, as well as rightist revolutionaries in Corsica, Malta, Macedonia, and Croatia. They also supported the Austrian paramilitary Heimwehr in 1928, and they famously also backed General Franco in the Spanish Civil War. There are rumors that they backed fascists in Britain. For geopolitical reasons, they were against France in basically every single way. And they did not really back the French fascists because they did not want a strong France. But they would have been fine with almost every other European country going fascist. Given this history, they absolutely funded the Nazis. But that's not the question. The real question is... How much did they give? For context, in 1929, a former Nazi named Werner Abel accused Hitler of having accepted Italian fascist money in 1923. This is a messy story because in the 1920s, Abel was a member of the organization Consul. 
That's right, that right-wing terrorist group that killed several top politicians, most notably Walter Rothenau, and Abel also joined the Nazi party, but he fell out with them due to Hitler's policy of basically giving South Tyrol directly to Italy, and because he didn't like how the Nazis were attacking other far-right politicians. Hitler sued Abel for libel. In court, Abel testified that he introduced Hitler to Captain Migliorati. You'll have to forgive my Italian. I speak Spanish, not Italian, so I'm not going to be particularly good at pronouncing Italian. But bear with me. Captain Migliorati worked at the Italian embassy in Berlin, and this captain transmitted Italian fascist funds to Hitler for the Munich Push. Abel lost the lawsuit in 1932, although many people noted that he did not receive a fair trial. Abel was probably not guilty of libel since it's not libel if it's true, but he did lose the case. Supporting Abel's claims, there were three men who all made specific claims that they knew and saw Mussolini giving financial aid to Hitler. André-François Ponset was the French ambassador to Germany, the SS General Karl Wolf, and Otto Braun, the minister-president of Prussia. All three of these men had access to highly classified secret intelligence information and would have been in a position to know this information. Regarding Braun's claims, the cost of the Nazis' first electoral success was about 20 million marks, of which 18 million had come from Italy. He stated that Hitler is receiving enormous sums from Italy. They come from Munich through a Swiss bank. Otto Braun also said that the Italians kept funding the Nazis even after the 1923 push. These are specific claims made by the Minister-President of Bavaria printed in the Saturday Evening Post. So, in my book, they carry quite a bit of weight. Finally, there was a trial in Rome of an Italian official accused of embezzlement. In the trial, it quickly became obvious that the missing funds were intended for Hitler, so the Italian government had to switch the trial and finish it in secret. In another incident, an Italian diplomat named Raphael Guarguilia also said that they were shipping arms to the Nazis during this time. Clearly, some things were afoot in Italy. Let's talk about other foreign funders of the Nazis. During Kurt Ludicke's world tour, and particularly during his time with the Wagners visiting Henry Ford, he also traveled to many other U.S. cities, especially the ones with large German-American populations. We're talking Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and so on. Kurt Ludicke says he mostly met with disappointment and described getting yelled down by German-Americans on multiple occasions. Still, as we know, Kurt Ludicke is a liar because German-Americans were not as unresponsive were not as unresponsive as he claimed. They secured consistent, sizable donations from the Free Society of Teutonia, which was a German-American social club and drinking organization that was sort of like the German-American Bund. Here's the interesting part. Although the Free Society of Teutonia had chapters all over the United States, almost all the donations came from the Chicago chapter, which only had 60 members. But several of those members happened to be executives 
of the Ford Motor Company. Now, this is not a huge source of funds, but we're talking about a consistent 500 US dollars every couple months for eight years running, which is not insubstantial at the end of the day. Now, we already talked about other German expats living all over Europe, also donating to the Nazi party, and of course that continued. One other source was Queen Marie of Romania and King Ferdinand of Bulgaria. Queen Marie of Romania is known to have rather admired some of Hitler's policies, and King Ferdinand of Bulgaria was often seen wearing a swastika pin encircled with diamonds on his lapel. That's right, our old friend Queen Marie of Romania, who I am slowly becoming obsessed with, shows up yet again as someone who rather admired Hitler's policies. Trust me, I have even more dirt on her to come out eventually when we inevitably return to Sullivan and Cromwell. Still, let's be real. There's still one major glaring group that we have not discussed yet, and they might be the single most important group to back the Nazis financially, apart from German heavy industry. Hitler considered them the natural allies to the Nazis, which makes sense because their royal family was actually German. I'm talking about a group of people so nefarious and pederastic that they have to cultivate a twee aesthetic to cover their tracks. I'm talking about an island of evil that has spawned everything wrong with the world today. That's right, we're talking about merry old England. So as you might expect, Hitler sent Kurt Ludicky to visit Britain, and his visit took place in 1924. Again, he claimed that he did not get any financial contributions. This might actually be true in the strict sense, but we will get into specifics here. One of the first people that Kurt Ludicky went to see was Lord Sydenham of Combe. Lord Sydenham was the former governor of Bombay which I probably don't need to tell you what horrors he was probably responsible for over there. Lord Sydenham was also a knight of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, and yet again I'm looking at you knowingly. He was on the Nazis' radar because he wrote a pamphlet called The Jewish World Problem, and was known for his attacks in the House of Lords against the British Mandate over Palestine. In his spare time, he also supported the Britons, which was a nativist quasi-fascist organization in the UK, and he corresponded with Adrian Arcand, the Canadian Fuhrer and would-be fascist leader in Canada. He was a real fellow traveler for the Nazis. Lord Sydenham probably did give Kurt Ludicky money, but we don't know how much, and it is probably not a huge sum. Through Sydenham, Ludicky met the Duke of Northumberland, who was the owner of the right-wing Tory newspaper The Morning Post, which was known for its anti-communist stance. That's about as far as Ludicky got on this particular trip. Still, the Nazis were on the radar of British intelligence too. That street goes both ways. Specifically, Major F.W. Winterbotham, the Chief of Air Intelligence of the British Secret Intelligence Service understood the growing importance of the Nazi party. In this case, of course, Chief of Air Intelligence refers to the Royal Air Force, but it also makes me think of Paizuzu, the Demon King of the Wind, 
who makes an appearance in The Exorcist, written by William Peter Blatty, who of course worked in the Air Force and in the United States Information Agency, another spy cover. Intelligence and occult activities always go hand in hand. Air intelligence indeed. Winterbotham is a very interesting person, and he might get his own episode one day. Later on, he was in charge of Ultra, which was Churchill's most secret intelligence source during World War II. So, in 1931, Major Winterbotham was curious about the Nazi party, but instead of dispatching agents to monitor and observe, they invited Alfred Rosenberg to come meet him and a variety of important people in Britain. Now, we talked about Alfred Rosenberg before in episode 7. As a reminder, he was a Thule Society member and early Nazi. He also spoke Russian fluently. He was the guy who introduced Hitler to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, right? He was close to the White Russians and all that. Alfred Rosenberg is a very weird but telling choice out of all of the Nazis to invite, because Rosenberg did not speak English, but he was upper class. And you know how that matters in the United Kingdom. Well, Winterbotham brought Rosenberg and put him up in a luxury hotel. On their trip, they visited the exclusive Carlton Club, which was known for its rightist political opinions. Although the club was only for the fellas, in later years they thought it was fair to make Maggie Thatcher an honorary member, so that's pretty cool. The Carlton Club might also have the uniquely dubious distinction of having been bombed by both the Nazis via the Luftwaffe and the Provisional Irish Republican Army. Although I suppose that could be true for a lot of London if you think about it. At least when the IRA did it, people got injured, because when the Nazis bombed the Carlton Club, they only damaged the building. Winterbotham introduced Rosenberg to Jeffrey Dawson, the editor of The Times, and they talked about points of mutual interest, like griping about the Versailles Treaty, and colonial policy. From that point on, the Times was not pro-Nazi, but they were not, until much later, oppositional to the Nazis, and would often make favorable comments about the movement. Major Winterbotham introduced Alfred Rosenberg to Oliver Locker Lampson, who is the leader of the Blue Shirts, that is to say the British Fascisti. Take note here, because a British intelligence officer is specifically making introductions between British and German fascists. We know they're always doing this, but it's rarely as documented and on the record as it is here. There are unconfirmed, but in my opinion probably true, rumors about Rosenberg meeting Lord Hailsham, Lord Lloyd, and the conservative MP Walter Elliott. Considering the climax of the trip, I believe that it is likely that Rosenberg met at least some of those people. <clears throat> the key purpose of the entire trip came when Winterbotham brought Rosenberg to meet Montague Norman, the governor of the Bank of England and member of the Order of the Crown, 
which was the National Order of Belgium. Montague Norman was particularly close to Dr. Yalmar Schott. I believe that Norman was godfather to one of Schott's grandchildren, for example. Montague Norman was a real fancy lad. He was known for dressing in a way that would be called dapper, rakish, arty, perhaps foppish. I'll post images on Twitter as always, but you should look him up. I think he kind of looks like Satan. It's probably hard to overstate how important Montague Norman was. He was the governor of the Bank of England for 24 years, where he was a strong advocate for the gold standard, which he called knave-proof. But he was also the governor when the UK abandoned the gold standard in 1931. The Wall Street Journal once referred to Montague Norman as the currency dictator of Europe, which he admitted to at one point. So, Alfred Rosenberg definitely met Montague Norman in 1931. The question is, why? And that is literally the billion-dollar question. For one thing, Montague Norman was described as instinctively pro-German and despised the Versailles Treaty, and we already talked about his ties to Dr. Schott. Montague Norman also hated Jews, and that is pretty well established. Norman's private secretary said that Norman had some, quote, fundamental dislikes, the French, the Roman Catholics, the Jews. Norman appears to be full of contempt for the Jews. He speaks of them in very bad terms, unquote. Still, being pro-German and hating Jews is not really a good reason for a Nazi representative to meet with the governor of the Bank of England, right? Especially when the Nazis were basically a minor party that nobody really knew about. What were they up to? What's going on here? There's really only one answer, and I think we both know what it is. To quote the Thomas Pynchon novel, Inherent Vice, and specifically the federal informant character, Coy Harlingen, when I first started snitching, I realized how often people ask questions they already know the answers to, but they just want to hear it from another voice, like outside their head. I am happy to be that voice in your head, dear listener. So Alfred Rosenberg was meeting with Montague Norman to secure funding. The Bank of England funded the Nazis. This is not even really in dispute. The facts are there. Let's go through some of them. After Hitler came to power... Montague Norman and Dr. Schott met to confer on arrangements for loans to Germany. In May 1934, a private meeting took place between the two bank presidents. Then, on June 11th, a secret conclave took place at Badenweiler in the Black Forest, where Norman once again saw Dr. Schott for an unofficial discussion. Early in October, they met again once more in the same Black Forest rendezvous and again undertook secret negotiations for loans to Nazi Germany. The British newspaper, the Daily Herald, wrote an article on September 30, 1933, saying, quote, Mr. Montague Norman gave the decision to give the Nazis the backing of the Bank of England. In these circumstances, Mr. Montague Norman's financial support for the Nazi regime raises questions of the utmost political importance, particularly as this is the first time on record that the Bank of England has ever used its influence 
in this way to support any foreign bonds, unquote. Now, that might be overdoing it a bit. I'm sure it's not the very first time the Bank of England has ever done something like that. But it is true that the Bank of England typically did not. And I would agree that it is pretty wild considering how it immediately blew back in Britain's face with the London Blitz and so on. It is a fact that Montague Norman made loans to the Hitler regime shortly after it took office in January 1933. Like, that is established beyond a shadow of a doubt. But did they provide any financing to the Nazis before they were in power? Yet again, Montague Norman's private secretary thought so. However, he thought that the Bank of England money was not used. Instead, Norman brokered their financing needs. This is crucial. After Alfred Rosenberg met with Montague Norman, then he went to meet with representatives of the Schroeder Bank of London, which had close financial ties to the Stein Bank. The Stein Bank pretty much relied on Montague Norman's word. Remember, he was the currency dictator of Europe, and the Stein Bank provided funding to the Nazi party. Again, ironically, they were relying on Norman's opinion that the Nazis would not be harmful to British interests. Prior to this point, German high finance was extremely cautious with Hitler for a variety of reasons, including the reason that German finance was under assault and working under poor conditions for like, I don't know, the entirety of the period after World War I. But getting the green light from someone like Montague Norman pretty much paved the way for the Nazis to come to power. To top it all off, Alfred Rosenberg also went and met with Lord Beaverbrook, who was the owner of the Daily Express, the Sunday Express, and the Evening Standard. The Oxford Dictionary of Biography euphemistically said, quote, Beaverbrook was rarely a faithful husband, and even in old age was often accused of treating women with disrespect, unquote. Which, in elite British speak, probably means that he was a rapist or a nonce or something. Although, again, I must note that I am editorializing here. Anyway, Lord Beaverbrook's papers provided restrained yet dignified approval of the Nazis, which itself went a long way towards winning over moderate Germans. Lord Beaverbrook did do a pretty funny burn on Alfred Rosenberg, though, because in his own correspondences, he said of Alfred Rosenberg, quote, He is a strong anti-Semite and is Hitler's representative, and like many another man who is opposed to the Jews, he has their racial marks upon him, unquote. Which, I don't actually, like, I don't know, I'm not like a phrenologist or anything, but I don't think Alfred Rosenberg looks particularly Jewish, but Lord Beaverbrook thought so, and that's pretty funny. Again, I must emphasize that this whole trip was organized and paid for by British intelligence, and it was not about gathering information on the Nazis, it was about brokering connections and deals that brought the Nazis to power. Despite what some researchers insist, Britain did not want Germany to go red, since that would risk Britain going red, and no rich person has ever wanted their own country to go red. British finance fundamentally made the same calculation as German heavy industry, but from a different perspective based on their own needs. 
Speaking of, it's no secret that there were large factions of pro-German and pro-Nazi sympathizers in the British ruling class. We've already gone through several, but there was also Viscount Rothmere, who owned the Daily Mail, and he gave the Nazis tons of pages of direct praise. Rothmere probably gave the Nazis direct financial support through Putzi Hopfstengel, but the main support that he gave was probably good press. Also, hilariously, Rothmere liked to call Adolf Hitler Dolphy Hitler, which I think sort of takes the wind out of Adolf Hitler's name in that weird way that only British people can come up with. Dolphy Hitler. Less comedic, though, Viscount Rothmere also funded the British Union of Fascists with the hilarious acronym BUFF. BUFF were the black shirts, who were run by Sir Oswald Mosley. There's even an informal name for the clique of pro-German upper-class Brits, the Cliveden set, which included Lord Halifax and Viscountess Astor. Still, we have not yet talked about perhaps the most prominent Nazi sympathizer. That's right, we're talking about the Prince of Wales, who would soon become King Edward VIII. So, he had lots of reasons to be pro-German, not least of which because he was himself a German. I've already made clear the programmed to chill stance that the British royal family are German pretenders to the throne but I am not staking out some sort of alternate legitimist claim per se. Program to chill is against all monarchies except for King Lud. But Edward VIII's mother, Mary of Teck, was a German princess and was raised speaking German. Edward VIII himself spoke German. His sympathies were made public in a speech he gave in June 1935 at the annual conference of the British Legion. This speech was regarded by many in England and Germany as the seal of the friendship agreement between the two countries. He was reprimanded by his father, King George V, for speaking about political matters without prior approval of the Foreign Office, and inspired much gossip about the Prince of Wales's alleged Nazi leanings. So, if anyone in the U.S. happens to know anything at all about Edward VIII, they might know that he abdicated the throne for love, since he proposed to Wallace Simpson, an American socialite who had two living ex-husbands. He's famous for being the king who abdicated for love, which is a romantic notion, and it is also pure fiction. He was forced to resign due to his pro-Nazi attitudes when it looked certain that Britain and Nazi Germany would go to war. There are many pieces of evidence that this is the case, both English and German sources too. There is a memorandum from Ribbentrop to Hitler dated January 2nd, 1938, that stated the following. National Socialism, however, is thought capable of anything. Baldwin already apprehended this, and Edward VIII had to abdicate since it was not certain whether, because of his views, he would cooperate in an anti-German policy. Unquote. Hermann Goring was also certain of this fact. Anthony Eden was reported to have said that if King Edward continued to speak independently on foreign affairs, that there were ways and means of compelling him to abdicate. And Hugh Dalton, the Labour MP, 
also made similar statements. To be clear, it's not that his proposal to Wallace Simpson had nothing to do with his abdication. It actually had a lot to do with it, since she was a Nazi sympathizer herself. There are FBI and MI5 reports on it. I will quote from an MI5 report that says, quote, It is clear to me that it is her intention not only to come back here, but, aided by what she expects to be a generous provision from public funds, to set up a court of her own, and there can be little doubt, do her best to make things uncomfortable for the new occupant of the throne. It must not be assumed that she has abandoned hope of becoming Queen of England. It is known that she has limitless ambition, including a desire to interfere in politics. She has been in touch with the Nazi movement and has definite ideas as to dictatorship." Unquote. After their marriage, they went to Nazi Germany in 1937 and met Dolphy Hitler. Sorry, I won't keep saying Dolphy Hitler, but it is a pretty funny term. Churchill arranged for Edward VIII to become the governor of the Bahamas to get him out of the way, as he would be a political liability during a war. The couple settled there living in Nassau. Ding, ding, ding. Sus Nassau in the Bahamas yet again. Now, an FBI informant stated that there was no doubt that the Duchess of Windsor had an affair with Ribbentrop, and that, of course, she had an intense hate for the English since they had kicked them out of England. Which, I mean, respect. I love the intense hate for the English, too. I just hate how so many of the top Anglo-haters are arch-Germans. Anyway, back to the point. Although Edward was not yet king at the time of Rosenberg's 1931 visit, men like Montague Norman, Dawson, Rothmere, these men were undoubtedly aware of Edward's pro-German feelings, and this gave them a certain amount of moral support for their own beliefs. Likewise, German industrialists and businessmen were impressed by Edward's favorable view of Hitler. In fact, most Germans believed that the British royal family held the reins of political power in their hands. Yeah, those silly Germans mistakenly thinking that the British royal family actually do hold the reins of political power instead of knowing that they're just figureheads, as we've been told by many terribly serious people, you know? So, in May 1933, Alfred Rosenberg made his second and last trip to Great Britain. Where did he go? He went to Kelling Hall in Norfolk, England, near Windsor Castle, to visit Sir Henry Detterding, who is often called the Napoleon of Oil. Sir Detterding was the general manager for the Royal Dutch Petroleum Company, and was the chairman of the Combined Royal Dutch Shell Oil Company. Among other things, he was a honorary knight commander of the Order of the British Empire for his services to Anglo-Dutch relations. He was also a key supporter of the white Russian community and a major funder of all things expat Ukrainian. In other words, with Sir Detterding, we are talking about about as close to pure, unadulterated, earthly power and wealth as you can possibly get. One newspaper at the time reported the following, In the light of the present European situation, this private talk between Hitler's foreign advisor and the dominant figure in European oil politics is of profound interest. It supports the suggestion 
current in well-informed political circles that the big oil interests have kept closely in touch with the Nazi party in Germany. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that big oil interests have ties to the Nazi party? Oh man, I sure hope that's not true in the United States too. So, Dutch Shell had gigantic investments in the Georgian Baku oil fields, as well as massive holdings in Grozny and the Mayakop oil fields as well. Now, those were lost when Moscow nationalized them. Even worse, the USSR started to export oil and actually became Dutch Shell's direct competitor. From that point onward, Sir Detterding aimed to destroy Bolshevism. His hatred drove him to support every anti-communist or white Russian organization out there. In 1924, Detterding married the daughter of a white Russian general. Detterding was often accused of encouraging armed uprisings in Soviet Russia. A New York Times correspondent wrote an article that appeared in September 13, 1924, that said, It is understood, according to well-informed persons, that the revolution is being financed by former proprietors of Baku oil fields. And Esad Bey, a prominent white Russian, stated that it was Sir Detterding who supplied the money for a rebellion. A passage from Who Financed Hitler states, a Daily Telegraph reporter believed that Bell and Rosenberg met an international magnate in London and big credits for the Nazis followed. The Dutch press stated that Detterding sent to Hitler, through George Bell, about four million guilders. Some say that Sir Henry Detterding gave the Nazis money in exchange for their agreement to give him preferred standing in a German oil market when they came to power. In 1931, it was reported that Detterding made a loan of 30 million to Hitler in return for a promise of a petroleum monopoly. Some have claimed the loan was as large as 55 million. Lochner, an authority on the relation between Hitler and big business, mentions an alleged 10 million marks contributed by Dutch oil lords to the Nazis. With so many sources, it is certain that Sir Detterding financed Hitler all that remains uncertain is the exact sum of money, but it would not be injudicious to say that it was substantial. Unquote. So, probably in exchange for the promise of a petroleum monopoly, Sir Detterding bought the Duchy of Mecklenburg in Germany from the Queen of the Netherlands and moved to Berlin, where he got a special tax exemption ruling. He also had one in Great Britain because he was Dutch. The move to Berlin forced a much closer link between the Nazi regime and Dutch Shell. According to his biographer, the move and a new marriage made Sir Detterding think like a true Nazi, which was probably easy because, at the age of 70, he married a buxom 30-year-old Nazi. Perks of being the Napoleon of oil, I suppose. When World War II heated up, Sir Detterding simply moved to Switzerland, and you know who he was probably hanging out with in Switzerland. That's right, Alan Dulles. So, 
Bismarck famously once said that no story is worth believing until it has been officially denied. So, in 1932, two of Hitler's top fundraisers, Kurt Ludicke and Alfred Rosenberg, were sitting in the office of the Volkischer Beobachter, and they were talking about the accusations of Hitler being in foreign pay. According to Ludicke's account, Alfred Rosenberg said it was a very delicate affair and spoke in a voice of veiled irony accompanied by a suggestive smile. Rosenberg said, You know, of course, that Hitler has declared in court that we never received foreign pay from any source and never even asked for it. And at the end of the day, that is all we're left with. A mountain of evidence on one hand, and veiled irony with a suggestive smile on the other. So, in the last elections, some have estimated that the Nazi party racked up more than 90 million Reichsmarks in debt, which is an astounding sum when you think about how much money they had raised over the past five episodes. Then again, they were an organization of thousands of people that operated full-time, overtime, for nearly 14 years before seizing state power so it does perhaps make sense that they would burn through funds and rack up debts like crazy. It is very likely that if the Nazis did not seize power at that time, they would have collapsed. Hitler had had to deal with multiple strikes from his own stormtroopers, which is pretty funny if you think about it. Still, thanks to Montague Norman, the Schroeder and Stein banks provided the final funds needed for the Nazis to come to power. What's more, the way this funding was structured, they were covering existing Nazi party debts, which basically secured them bottomless credit, which is very different from providing hard cash. This means that they could later claim technically correct that they had not given cash to the Nazi party, as of course they instead let everyone know that their credit was real good. And once Hitler became chancellor, the Nazis had no problems paying those debts off. So the Schroeder and Stein banks and their investors were never actually required to give any money to the Nazis, but instead ended up making interest. That's how you know when you're truly rich, when you can basically flip common sense on its head and get protection like that. And guess which bank shows up here at the end of the story? Deutsche Bank, now considered by some to be a zombie bank with a long string of mysterious banker suicides, organized crime ties, and of course ties to Jeffrey Epstein. The funds and cash that the Nazis actually got came from, among other banks, Deutsche Bank, which I learned had some very interesting qualities. Deutsche Bank possessed extensive and unique influence throughout the entire German economy because it combined deposit banking with investment banking and with management functions, which the United States does not allow these things to be combined. Now, in Germany, most securities of corporations were payable to the bearer, and so most stockholders would deposit their shares with banks for safekeeping. When the banks had these shares for safekeeping, the banks would then vote with those shares and trust it to them. Now imagine that. If you're holding your stock at a bank for safekeeping, the bank decides how to vote with it. 
That is remarkable. So, since Deutsche Bank was watching so many people's stocks, they basically had an influential voice in management of some of Germany's biggest firms, like IG Farben, Siemens & Halski, BMW, Daimler-Benz, and Philip Holzman AG. In Goebbels' journal, he wrote on January 17, 1932, the financial situation has improved all of a sudden. Yeah, no kidding. In early January of 1933, Hitler was feeling desperate since an economic upturn could happen at any time now. And, quote, the political game was to be in power at the moment when the economic upturn began. Finally, tensions over tariffs made it so that German peasants and landlords temporarily had aligned interests that is, to oppose and overthrow the current government under Chancellor von Schleicher. The momentary shifting of alliances got President Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as Chancellor, and then, of course, we know the Reichstag fire happened, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, what can we learn from the entire series? For one thing, if we follow the money, we can see who was backing the Nazi party and why we now have a more realistic understanding of the Nazi party's power base and the different factions that made it up. We saw how the Nazi party started as an intelligence operation ran by the German military using a nucleus of esoteric German theosophical ideas and fancy lad aristocrats, and they were given rhetorical and propaganda juice from white Russians who truly hate the Jews, and the Nazis were kept afloat during some lean years by Henry Ford, who also truly hated the Jews. We got to see the different ways in which rich tycoons can execute their harebrained views of the world, and how they can fund things covertly. Then we saw how the Nazi party was explicitly a trick designed to distract the working class from communism, and that funding it was a deliberate gamble by big business to that end. We also saw how what motivated Hitler was not just anti-Semitism, but an accurate, if bloodthirsty, zero-sum, dog-eat-dog view of the world, which was grounded in accurate economics and history. Then we learned about heavy and light industry, and how these different clusters of companies all have different needs and therefore fund different political projects. It's all self-interest, of course, but on a much more complicated and nuanced level than I normally see discussed on the U.S. left today. We learned about the Ruralada, which was the secret organization designed to fund and bribe for economic gain, specifically for German heavy industry. And, of course, those things exist today under the normalized term of lobbying, which is just bribery. We also learned about Hitler's accountant and the mass ritual performed at the Brocken. Finally, we saw how the Italians massively funded the Nazis, but so did the British in a much trickier, more plausibly deniable way. Now, there is no better way than to close out this series with some lines from Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Don't forget, the real business of war is buying and selling.
The murdering and the violence are self-policing and can be entrusted to non-professionals. The mass nature of wartime death is useful in many ways. It serves as spectacle, as diversion from the real movements of the war. It provides raw material to be recorded into history so that children may be taught history as a sequence of violence, battle after battle, and be more prepared for the adult world. Best of all, mass deaths a stimulus to just ordinary folks, little fellows, to try and grab a piece of that pie while they're still here to gobble it up. The true war is a celebration of markets. Now as for sources, again, I cannot recommend enough the book Who Financed Hitler. I also briefly used the book Abdication and the book The King Who Had to Go, along with some FBI and MI5 files on Wallace Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad you stuck with me through this series. I believe that we'll have some shorter series from here on out, although I do have one bigger one a little bit later. The dream and the goal was always to do series of about maybe two to three episodes. I never meant to have series reaching five or six. I feel like that's a little excessive, but I don't know. We'll see. This is a evolving project. We'll see how it shakes out. As always, just tell a friend about the show, and I need to be on my way to 630 Fifth Avenue in New York, New York. See you next week, and God bless.